0: One of the things we're really divided around is risk taking yep. and and giving people the the liberty and the freedom to pursue risk responsibly, not yeah. irresponsibly, not at the harm of others, and wish them well as opposed to the schadenfreude of, oh, look at that person taking a risk. I hope they fail miserably, Yep. right? Well, maybe you shouldn't think about the risk they're taking and think more about what risk might you responsibly take to to bring greater value and meaning to your life.
1: One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck For guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors... You're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you wanna know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it, You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. I line when we had a call a couple of weeks ago that I actually wrote down. You said, I had no plan and I executed it. (laughs) And so where I want to start the conversation is you're now the CEO of Vici, one of the largest REITs in the country but you started as an editor for a ski magazine that's a wide career so let's start back to how did you even become a editor of a ski magazine
0: yeah gosh chris well i suppose it starts in a way with being an english major in college back in the 70s when when people generally weren't under the quite the same pressure to be careers that they are now i went to new york in the summer of 79 after messing around the mountains for about a year then thought I might go into book publishing and even in 1979 people in book publishing were saying don't come into this business it's dying i mean it's, <laughs> it's still here and so i i decided okay i'll give the magazine business a shot so actually before i got to ski magazine i had a very trippy first couple of years because the first magazine i worked at as an editorial assistant was cosmopolitan okay <laughs> right and i got hired on the spot because the woman editor hiring me thought it would be kind of fun to have a, a young male editorial assistant <laughs> And I, I confess, I didn't last her all that long. I, I left after 10 months. But it was a very good learning experience because the woman who ran Cosmopolitan, Helen Gurley Brown, was a certified genius, right? And I'll tell you what kind of genius she had, but, only, but not until I tell you who the next person I went to work for, and that was Norman Vincent Peale. Okay. Okay? The, you know, the creator of the whole idea of the power of positive thinking. So from Helen Gurley-Brown and Cosmopolitan to Norman Vincent Peale in a magazine called Guideposts, what both people were about and what public- both publications were about, frankly, was self-improvement. And self-improvement is, I think, the United States' unique selling proposition against all other nations in the world, right? We are a country that believes so fiercely in self-improvement, and that can manifest itself in all kinds of ways and i had the good fortune in working a guidepost to work for a brilliant man who really taught me so much about not only magazine making but communication and really figuring out how to tell the story you want to tell in terms as simple and clear <laughs> as possible and really really challenge yourself on does the audience understand what i'm trying to say and uh, i carried those skills over to ski magazine and had an enormous amount of fun at ski it was the op- the first real opportunity in life to combine uh, vocation with avocation. I'd grown up, I loved skiing, and I just felt like I'd, I'd, I'd died and gone to career heaven because I was getting to work with brilliant people around a subject we were all madly passionate about. And I did that for eight years, no, nine years, but then came the opportunity, which I can elaborate on more in a moment perhaps, to go to work in ski resort operations with uh-huh. a company called Interwest, a brilliant man named Hugh Smythe, And that was the progression from magazines to ski resort operations. And then over time in this discussion, we can talk about well, how do you go from ski resort operations to running hotel REITs and then eventually running a REIT that uh, principally owns gaming uh,
1: real estate. I wanna talk about all that. Can you, and maybe you answered it and I just missed it. Why was she a certified genius? Because she understood the desire of American working class
0: and middle class, but especially American working class women to improve their station, yep. right? And that came at a time when women were really in a meaningful way leaving the house to pursue careers in okay. the wider world, okay. right? She, she started out as a secretary, yep. right? And she was a secretary who made her way to r- running what was probably one of the most profitable magazines in the world at that point, because she tapped in to the women's desire to figure out, how do I improve my life, and yep. what are all the resources and skills I can call on to do so? And, and people tended to gr- oversimplify what she was doing and saying "Oh it was all about, you know, playing off a of sex appeal and everything else. It was not that, yeah. right. The editorial content of Cosmo was way better than people understood. And it was really about improving this full suite of life skills that a woman, especially a working class woman could call on to improve her lot in life.
1: The other thing you said, I just found interesting, you said back then, younger folks' obsession with careerism was not what it was today. Yeah. What did it look like back then? And then how would you frame it today for anyone that can't really reference that time period?
0: Well, I think it's manifested in a few different ways. One of the ways in which it manifested itself is that when you were in high school and college back then, and I'm talking about the 1970s, I graduated from college in 1978, almost no matter what income level your family was at, it was understood that in the summers, you got a real job doing real work, and it was usually kind of frontline work of one kind or another, right? You know, you might have worked on a farm, you might have worked, you know, behind a counter you worked with, no matter, even if you were upper middle class, even if you're going to an Ivy League college, you worked with working class people and you might've been supervised by working class people. And it was doing what the military historically did, which was bringing people together of different classes, different education levels, and, and forcing those people to figure out how do we make it work together, right? And I think it, It was a way, especially for those who were gonna go on to high-powered educations and high-powered careers to learn how to lead people of all different kinds, right? So fast forward now 40, 50 years, if you're in high school anymore and if you come from upper income levels, you start getting internships like after ninth grade, Mm -hmm. right? You start resume building, you start career building, and then once you get into college, God knows you're not working by an account or anywhere, right? right? You, you're trying to intern for an investment bank, a consulting firm, somebody, some kind of firm that's gonna represent the kind of career you're gonna build, yep. right? And it's a hothouse environment that I think has really caused it to suffer as a company, uh, sorry, as a country. Yeah. And you know, if you wanna, I think you wanna understand how we've evolved over the last, especially the last 20 years. I think it's that to such a great degree, certain educated elites have lost totally lost touch with the lives led by working class people especially between the coasts yep right because everybody's either working in finance or consulting or maybe tech and they're not they're not on a factory floor you know engaging with with the workers on the floor to understand the lives they're living the work they're doing and and what state of mind they're in right, right? It, again it all goes back to to this careerism and the degree to which not only are people more careerist now, but the careers people are really interested in have gotten so narrow. Right, right.
1: Interesting. Is there any sign that we'll go backwards or the the, the tailwinds are at this careerism as uh, we
0: sit? I, I don't know. I think there is an increasing recognition that this career, relentlessly careerist, approach and this relentless drive to achieve elite status of one kind or another is not improving the health of our country. And, you know, you do hear rumblings, and this is one thing I think Jamie Diamond talks about as an example very powerfully, the degree to which, you know, we need to start thinking about forms of service, not just military service, which is, I think, a very healthy way to to develop an ethic of service, but I look back, i sorry, I'm gonna maybe ramble a little bit. I look no. back at the great financial crisis and I really regret that the Obama administration didn't look back to the 1930s and go, you know what? The WPA and the Civilian Conservation Corps did an enormous amount of good during a time when the economy of the country was in a shambles, right? And it was really right around that time, my wife and I got to stay in the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon, which was built by the Triple C, right? And this is a legacy of the CCC that represents civic wealth that we still all benefit from today. Any of us who can get to go there and it's not wildly high priced. It's really, it welcomes really the whole of the country. I, I hope over time, you know, we can de- develop more of an ethical service so that it's not a case where, geez, if I don't get hired by Goldman or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or McKinsey or Bain right out of college, my career is lost. And that, in fact, I should do something for a couple of years that's going to really educate me further in how people live and work, and how, and what can be done to improve how people live
1: and work. What was the CCC? I'm sorry. Civilian Conservation Corps. And what does it do? It what it what did or it what do? What did it
0: do? And, uh, principally during the 1930s, it engaged in in civil construction projects. Okay. Right. The WPA and the and the CCC. Uh, There, I think there was a distinction between the two, but frankly, I don't remember what it was exactly. But, you know, whether it was building assets like the Timberline Lodge, whether it was trail building in national parks, whether it was building, you know, concession and service buildings in national parks, whether it was creating public art, uh, art, public artworks and monuments, this is the kind of thing they did. And what they did was they created, again, what I would call civic wealth, right? And we have a lot of civic wealth in this country, but we don't take the pride in it that we should. And we're not creating new forms of civic wealth to the degree I think we should. And I think this even manifests itself in terms of the term we now use to describe what used to be called public works. We used to call them public works, whether it would be roads, water, sewer, electric and gas, because it was understood that we as the public, we owned them, we were accountable for for their for their health and their upkeep by using the term infrastructure, we've depersonalized it all, yeah, right? well, who's responsible for infrastructure? Well, not me, especially not me if my taxes are gonna have to pay for it, right,
1: so we could have called it the public works bill, the seven trillion dollar public works bill might have yeah if, a little if, differently. if
0: you know if more had gone to you know to improving our infrastructure mm-hmm. right. And, and God knows we've wasted a lot of money as a nation on, on public works projects that weren't managed properly, but we also know that the ones that were managed properly are what our economy relies on to work.
1: Yeah. One thing you said, just something that came to mind that, that I just thought was interesting. I was in Kentucky yesterday and the gentleman I was with owns a hospitality company that basically serves the small town that he lives in in Kentucky, 3,700 people, but he's brought it back to life. And I said, what'd you do last night? And he said, well, my family and pretty much all the owners of the company, we served all of the hospitality workers, pizza and food and threw a huge party for them. And they do that multiple times a year so that ownership can get a little bit of an idea of what it's like to actually serve and make pizza and throw stuff away and clean tables and I mean, you just said we've been doing it. It's a tradition. We've been doing it forever. And it's it's his way of kind of reminding people across the organization what it's like to serve and
0: Yeah. You know, what what was the show that CNBC used to run? Maybe they still do
1: Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss, right? Yeah.
0: And, you know, it was I remember really giving full marks to one of the Tishes. I think it was Jonathan, you know, the family that owns Lowe's hotels. Oh, that's right. And really come to appreciate that when you gotta wrestle a mattress around, yeah, right. It's a lot of work. Yep. It's a whole lot of work. And if you got to do it for 14 or 15 rooms a day, it begs the question, you know, are we supporting and resourcing and paying these people what they, what they deserve?
1: Yeah. Uh, my buddy got into the senior housing business and the way he started it, he reached out to a, a, a giant in the industry who said, you know what, I'm going to teach you this business. Come to my, uh, you, you know, the story, come to my facility will start, you know, in a couple weeks. So he gets in his blazer, gets in a tie, gets ready to go do get into senior housing. He walks him straight into the room and he says, these are the people that you'll give showers to today. These are the bathrooms that you'll be cleaning up. And if you can make it through this, you're going to be cut out for this industry. And it was completely opposite of how he thought about the industry. But you got to do the work.
0: Yeah. You know, I used to run a couple of hotel real estate investment trusts. And when I would do property tours, I frankly, I got bored pretty quick with just like looking at the rooms and and all that stuff. And one thing though I was really intent on is I always wanted the GM to bring me to the employee cafeteria. And I wanted to see two things. First of all, is the employee cafeteria in good shape? Actually more than the two things. Is the employee cafeteria in good shape? Is the food being served good? But most of all, how do the people react when the GM walks in? Mm. Do they react as if, what is he doing in here? He never comes in here. He doesn't know how to talk to us. We don't actually know how to talk to him.
1: Mm.
0: Or when the GM walks in, do the eyes light up, right? And oh, you know, (laughs) someone, he or she, who understands us, who supports us, who resources us properly, who knows us as people, asks about our kids, asks about the sport we might play. You know The difference a GM like that makes is is almost immeasurable, right? But it all comes down to understanding that as a leader of the property, you really gotta know everybody who works in it, understand the work they do, obviously be able to judge whether they're doing a good or a bad job, but no matter what, make sure they have everything in you to do the job well, and that they're fairly compensated, but but even as importantly, uh, emotionally compensated.
1: Yep. I oh, love it. All right, We're, we've really set the stage. Okay, I, I wanna go back in time again, back to leaving the, the editorial to get into operations and learning uh, Ski Mountains Run. And it's my understanding that you have a lot of knowledge and history on just how the ski industry in America really shaped and came to be. Yeah,
0: it's and it was, you know, one of the, one of the really fortunate experiences for me in the ski business is that the founders were mostly still alive, Hmm. right? The American ski business really dates from the 1930s. The first ski hill in America opened in Woodstock, Vermont in 1934 with a rope tow. And to talk about high velocity change, within a couple of years, April Harriman was opening Sun Valley in Idaho with a chairlift that had been basically derived from these lifts that Union Pacific used for their banana boats coming out of Central America, right? And it was a privilege to really get to know the founders and and understand how they had built the sport from really ground zero in what was then still only 50 years time. Yep. And it's an incredible community of people. The, the ski community was then, it really still is today. But it's also, <laughs> it's a sport an experience for which there's no inherent demand in the economy. And demand only exists to the extent that you excite demand for it basically every day. And the people still you know, running the sport and the people who founded the sport really understood that back then. Yep. And we're always looking for ways to animate the experience, bring it to life such that it attracted people. And yet, as we got into the early 90s, the ski sport definitely hit an air pocket. And it couldn't entirely be explained by it not snowing here or not not snowing there. It couldn't really be explained by economic conditions. And so I struggled to try to understand it. And I came up with a theory that I shared with the ski industry in either 94 or 95. And it was a a theory I developed out of a very rudimentary understanding of demographics. And if you look at the demographic age waves of our country, the greatest number of baby boomers were born in 1960. And in real terms, the American ski industry hit its peak in 1986 when the greatest number of baby boomers were 26 years old. Okay, No kids, finally got a little bit of money, got some freedom, so they would go to places like Mammoth in California, Killington in Vermont, obviously Keystone, Breck, Copper and Vail in, in Colorado, and ski their brains out, party their brains out. <laughs> but by the time we get to 1990, the greatest mass of baby boomers are having an enormous amount of kids, because very symmetrically, if the peak of the baby boom was 1960, the peak of what we would now call the millennial baby boom was 1990. So the negative aspect of that for the ski industry is that too many, there were too many families with kids too young to come skiing. And so it was my theory that within the next few years, these kids will be ready to come skiing. We as an industry aren't ready for them. Our kids programs suck. Our lodging product isn't really designed for families. We really should figure this out because if we can capitalize on this age wave, everybody will benefit. And there was a few people from a company called Interwest in the audience. And they heard this. They asked me to give the presentation to their executive team. And long story short, that eventually led to a job offer. So in 1996, I left my position as editor-in-chief of Ski Magazine to go to work for InterWest based in Whistler, moved my family from the New York area to Whistler, BC, and got to work f- for eight years for one of the most brilliant people I'll ever work with, a man named Hugh Smythe. And I can talk more about what I learned from Hugh because it also really ties to what I've fallen in love with gaming
1: about. Please do.
0: Yeah, well, so Hugh, Hugh was one of those people who knew at a very young age what he wanted <laughs> to do in life. And he wanted to work on ski mountains. And I think he joined the Whistler Mountain Ski Patrol at the age of 17. By the age of 19, he was mountain manager. But by the time he was in his early 20s, which was an age at which I was still trying to figure out like, you know, how to cross the street safely. <laughs> he decided I want my own ski area. So he, he managed to get his hands on a small ski area in Alberta. He ran that for a few years. And then came the opportunity to develop Blackcomb Mountain in Whistler, BC, and he managed to secure backing from the Alberta Development Investment Bank and, believe it or not, well, the Aspen Skiing Company, but the Aspen Skiing Company at that point was owned by 20th Century Fox. And 20th Century Fox was acquiring assets like Pebble Beach and the Aspen Skiing Company because it didn't know what to do with all the cash flow from Star Wars.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Think about it. <laughs> I did not know that.
0: Yeah. And so Espen Skiing Company agreed to put money behind uh, Hugh building Home, which he did pretty much with his bare hands. The bad news was that he opened in the winter of 1979 or 80, which happened to be one of the worst snow winters in North America in like 40 or 50 years. So it was a near death experience, but he fought his way through it and he carried through that time, and then through all the years I worked with him, he carried what the great placemakers and experienced creators carry with him, which I would say is a combination of this almost ecstasy at every day being a chance to put on a show and the terror of the perishability of inventory right? Because when you're in a business, whether it be the gaming business, the lodging business, the ski business, any business that sells a ticket, proverbially speaking, to an experience that takes place on a given day, if that ticket goes unsold that day, it stays unsold forever, That's true, right? And so for him, it was always, and including, again, the years I worked with him, it was, oh my God, we get a chance to put on a great show today. And oh, shit, if we don't put on a good show, like, what we're gonna that what we lost today we will lose we forever. will have lost forever right this 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 kind of manifested itself one day we're having a we had these regular operational update calls with the GMs of all our resorts and we were on the conference call one day with a a, a small ski area we owned in Quebec and and Hugh asked the general manager what's the outlook for the weekend and the general manager said it's fantastic snow's great the weather forecast is good gonna be a great weekend. And Hugh goes, Have you pushed the snowbanks back? And the GM goes, What? And I said, He, he Hugh again repeats, Have you pushed the snowbanks back? Now, for the sake of your audience, I won't, I won't duplicate the profanity that Hugh could operate at when he got riled up. But he said, I'm asking if you pushed the bleeping snowbanks back because you just said you're going to have a really huge day. And you shouldn't need me to tell you that one of your constraints on maximizing the day. Is parking lot capacity. Mm. So get some bo- dozers, get some payloaders, get whatever you got to get, and push those bleeping snowbanks back. Because <laughs> if you can get a, you know another fifty or hundred cars in, do the math and how much revenue that represents yep. you otherwise would never get, right? And you know, to me that was just breathtaking and understanding how in almost any business you make every day matter because yeah. every day does matter, especially in a business with highly perishable inventory, and. It was a great lesson, too, in how if you reduce any sort of hospitality, leisure, or entertainment business that is place-based to its essence, you are envisioning, you're creating, and you're operating the guest experience of time and space. That's, that's at the end of the day, what it's all about. It's the only two dimensions of existence, time and space. And... What I really have come to love about the gaming business, which I'm now involved in ways we can talk about in a moment, I recognized in the gaming operators I met what I, what I valued so much in Hue, which was constantly challenging ourselves and they challenge themselves. Now, what is the guest experience of a given increment of time and a given increment of space, okay? Okay. So if you think about gaming operators, a few years back, 10, 15 years back. They looked at the guest experience of the daylight hours as an experience of time and realized that's, we're not offering a lot. Then they looked at the guest experience of the swimming pool complex and experience of space and went, you know what, that's kind of lame too. And uh, you know, enough of people involved in Vegas had been places like Ibiza to understand what a day club was and oh, yeah. realized, we need to import the day club concept to Las Vegas because we'll enrich the guest experience of time, the daylight hours, and we'll enrich the guest experience of space, the swimming pool. And not only will we create more value in the guest experience, more value for the guest, we're gonna create a whole new revenue center. And there are day clubs in Las Vegas that you know can clear almost 100 million a year.
1: Like uh, Encore Win. That's one of the most famous and certainly one of the most productive. I mean, I've been there. On a, right? on a day, on like a Tuesday, and it is insane. Yeah.
0: And it didn't exist 20 years ago.
1: Right. Okay. And so let's take any kind of hospitality arrangement. The teams are constantly looking at what areas of this physical property are not being maximized. Is there another example? Uh, a day club is awesome. Is there another one that comes to mind that has developed, or maybe one that used to be great that's not great anymore?
0: Yeah, well, you can. I mean, you can go way back. Obviously, in the history of Vegas, I mean, the the whole concept of residency didn't wasn't actually born with Celine Dion. Yeah, it, it it was probably you could say reborn with Celine Dion at the Coliseum Theater and Caesar's Palace, which we own, because you can go back to the days of the Rat Pack and realize, okay, you know, we've we can't offer just gambling, right? People are going to want to have different experiences, including even those who gamble. So, you know, let's fill time and space with music. But then as time went on, the Vegas operators took Cirque du Soleil to a whole new level, Mm -hmm. right? And it enabled a magnitude of investment that Cirque du Soleil was never capable of when they literally would travel city to city and operate in a tent. Like the Ka Theater at MGM Grand, which we also own, was created for Cirque du Soleil about, I think about 20 odd years ago. And the original build-out cost was almost 200 million bucks. And today that space is still as vital and mind-blowing as ever, right? And then you 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 can go look at it either in terms of programming like, okay, what do we do to get F1 here? What do we do to get the NBA Final Four here? What do we do to get the Super Bowl here? What do we do to get the NHL, MLB, the NFL, and now maybe the NBA as well? And how do we redefine the dining experience, right? It was probably about 20 odd years ago when both the Las Vegas operators and the world's leading chefs realized this is a place to take dining to a whole new level, yeah. right? So again, you can really take, you can catalog or inventory the 24-hour experience and realize, okay, they've, in, they've either invented or not in all cases invented, but redefine what an experience can be by taking advantage of the of the the incredible Olympian economics of Las Vegas and its assets,
1: and we're talking Vegas, and we can stay on that. I mean, and I was going to get to this in a bit, but I think it's it's prudent now. Are people craving in real life experiences maybe more than ever? Because the argument would be, well, everybody's got an iPhone; it's a digital world. How if if I said to you, are they craving it more? Or are they willing to spend more? Is that trend still on the up and up, or is technology putting a meaningful dent in people's desire to go on physical location to do something?
0: It's interesting in that I think if you looked at if you looked at it globally, there is evidence around the world that technology is isolating people, right? And, and I, I can't give you the exact statistics, but you know you hear, especially in places like Japan and China. About young people, especially young men, who become hermits, right? Yep. What's interesting is that my sense—and please don't ask me for the facts to back this <laughs> up—my my sense is that here in America, net net, technology has actually led to more, not less, gathering. You know, people ask us, you know, what what what's beachy in the business of, and I would say, you know, in a way, we're in the business of owning real estate where people gather, right? And it's that urge to gather that I don't think is, has lessened. And what has in some ways benefited the whole human practice of gathering in the United States is the technology can actually facilitate people coming together, right? Right. You know, you look as an example at, at live music, right? I mean, I, I think back to my, my teenage self and like what a big deal it was to come up with the, the money to buy an album. Right. And, you know, in inflation adjusted terms, I think, a I think buying an album would have cost me like 40 bucks today. Yeah. Right. Okay. And now I get it all. Well, I don't get it free. I don't know what, I don't even know what Spotify charges me. Yeah.
1: Right. It's like 1499 a month, a month for every song in the world,
0: every song in the world. Right. And yet, live music is as vital as ever. Right. And the desire to gather around live music is as vital as ever. And we're obviously seeing that on our land, the Venetian with the opening of the sphere.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Wait, so you, the sphere is on the Venetian's land. Yes. Is it like a land lease.
0: Yes. Yes. And I'll tell you something kind of, kind of neat. And that is that if you've been to the Venetian, there which is 7100 rooms, the biggest largest single yeah. largest hotel in America. It has rooms that have a view of the strip and it has rooms that previously looked basically on parking lots. The opera- our operating partners at the Venetian now get a premium for severe view rooms <laughs> because it's a 24-hour animated feature. Yep. And it's it's redefining who comes to the Venetian? How, what they experience, what they spend. I was just with our Canyon Ranch partners, whom you know well, given your uh, your friendship with John Goff. And the Venetian also has within it a Canyon Ranch day spa, America's largest day spa. And they are seeing when u two is in residence at the, sphere, at the Sphere, Canyon Ranch is benefiting enormously. Wow! Right, and it's again, it's all about people coming together. Another example of that, Chris, is the fact that Las Vegas is a madhouse during March Madness. Yeah. Because people travel to Las Vegas to watch basketball on TV.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Like, you can look at that in a very cold, objective way and go, that is really irrational behavior. Yeah. You're spending a lot of time and a lot of money to go watch a basketball game on a screen when you could stay at home and do it for free, yep. But why do they do that? Because they want to be part of the buzz, and they could obviously try to get tickets for you know regional opening round, quarterfinal, what have you. But they're only going to see so many games, yep. Right? When they go to Vegas, they can see every game, yep, and they can watch games from you know whatever nine o'clock in the morning Pacific time till midnight Pacific time, and it's all about being together to do
1: that. I, I think on social media, this must be coming from the Venetian. I didn't realize that's the property it was on, but most of the videos you see, I guess the sun rises in the morning, mm-hmm. are, must be coming out of hotel rooms of people staying at the Venetian. That's the most often one I see is that that sun coming up. Orb
0: upon orb.
1: Yeah. And I remember playing golf at the Wind maybe two years ago and it was being constructed and I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that what is this? Only in Vegas. And now it's pretty much the most popular thing in the world.
0: It 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 it's it's really gone kind of crazy. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it was really interesting to see the lead in to the sphere opening and yeah. all the negativity. Oh, it's over budget, it's not gonna work. It, it, which was masked, of course, by all the negativity going into F one. Yep. Oh my God! You know it's too expensive. Nobody's gonna go. Who the hell wants to watch a race at that hour? Oh my gosh! You know it sucked up a, a you know water main cap. And then once the race actually happened, it was like you had drivers and and team owners going, "My gosh, that's the best race of the year!" Right. Yep. So anyway, yeah, I think what's remarkable is when you got people like Dana White going, "I want to have the first sport event, sporting event in the sphere," which he's now going to do in September. Though technically, you could argue, is is it going to be the first sporting event because the NHL is going to do their draft? Oh, uh, they are in the sphere, yeah, right. And you know, fish is going to go in in April, and you hear all kinds of r- rumors about you know who else might want to go in. And I think it's also part of the you know the continuing growth of the residency in Vegas, right? Again, we can go back to Celine Dion for basically reviving the whole idea of residency in an amazing way at Caesars Palace. And since then, you've obviously had the likes of Elton John, Rod Stewart, and now more recently, you know, Lady Gaga plays at our asset, uh, the Dolby Theater at Park MGM, along with Bruno Mars and Usher. You had, you know, Pink recently say after a Legion Stadium show, uh, you know, I basically I want a residency and I want it now, because for artists it's such a virtuous way, to to share their music without having to go to the brain damage of having forty or fifty semis, you know, packed with equipment and everybody moving every day or every couple of days. Interesting, right? Yep. I mean, when you think about what you two does at the Spear, when it comes to the production. There's not 40 semis. There's a laptop. Dang. Right? Because it's all about what the what the projection shows.
1: Right? Yep. Well, you didn't
0: need 40 semis of speaker equipment, lighting equipment, pyrotechnical equipment, fog machines, and all the normal stuff that go into putting on a rock concert.
1: You were right, I think I literally was watching a short on YouTube the other day where Dana White said, this is like the pinnacle, not the pinnacle of his career, this is like the most important project he's ever worked on is throwing the greatest, I guess he said MMA fight in world's history is leading up to this event in this fear. Is it fair to say, I mean, uh, just America or maybe the world being the world, is it fair to say people are trying to figure out how to build more of these around the country or is it?
0: Well, MSG, Madison Square Garden, which which developed a sphere and owns a sphere and has really created a, a pretty much a separate company around the sphere, has talked about creating spheres in global cities, the full-size spheres, right? So, you know, pr- potentially cities like London and Tokyo. Then I b- believe, they, they used to be speaking, and I don't know if they still do, they used to speak then about having something of a scaled-down sphere for... For other large cities that aren't quite as global as, say, in New York, London, or Tokyo, and they would still be, nonetheless, an opportunity for artists to take the content they created for the big sphere and take it on the road to smaller mm-hmm. ones. And again, I haven't—shame uh, on me—I haven't recently checked in to see if that's how they're still thinking about the growth mm-hmm. of of the of the brand and the network. But certainly. The way things have started in Las Vegas, you would hope there's some promise of that.
1: And what does it tell us about, what, what do hospitality people know that the general population doesn't know that you were kind of describing, you know, F1's not gonna work, this isn't gonna work, that's not gonna work, but clearly the people in hospitality are putting billions of dollars behind projects like this. They know that it's maybe not 100% gonna work, but they're pretty convicted. So what does that say about what hospitality people, like how they think? Versus how the general population generally receives these kind of new projects.
0: Well, I guess I probably ought to be precise at the risk of of overgeneralizing. Yeah. But it's really the media. Okay. That, you know, from which you tend to get that negativity. Got it. And then a lot of people can obviously feed off the ne- negativity and echo it. Yeah. But, I think, having spent you know the first seventeen years of my career in media it 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 and I don't mean this sound patronizing, but it saddens me to to see the way in which the media business has evolved over time such that it doesn't look like it's fun for anybody anymore, yeah, right? I mean, it's hard to hold an audience. The economics have gotten very challenging, and you can't help feeling at times that negativity seeps through to the front line of reporting, yeah. right and it what it really seems to come down to is this skepticism around and, and just general negativity around risk-taking. Right. And, and I think, you know, for us as a country, we, one of the things we're really divided around is risk-taking and, and giving people the, the liberty and the freedom to pursue risk responsibly, not irresponsibly, not at the harm of others and wish them well as opposed to the schadenfreude of, oh, look at that person taking a risk. I hope they fail miserably. Yep. Right? Well, maybe you shouldn't think about the risk they're taking and think more about what risk might you responsibly take to to bring greater value and meaning to your life.
1: Yep. All right, I want to talk a little bit more about Vici. get a little more into this. So the largest real estate owner on the Las Vegas Strip, which I, I read is the most economically productive street in America. I guess it makes sense. I, I didn't know that. It was, I was kind of fascinated to read that. Owning the Venetian, Caesars Palace, MGM, Mandalay Bay. There's probably more I left off. And then you partner with a lot of folks. But to set context, what do y'all do? And what do you all not do? Because I think a lot of people sometimes think, I think I did originally, that maybe you own the actual gaming businesses. So maybe just set context. What does Vici do and what does it not do?
0: Yeah. So we are at the highest level real estate investment trusts. Real estate investment trusts have really been meaningfully present in the U.S. since the early 90s. They started earlier than that, but that's when they, the REIT industry really started to grow. And in fact, our mutual friend, John Goff, created one of the early REITs in Crescent. The, the purpose of a real estate investment trust is to own real estate and distribute the cash flow of the real estate to the invest the equity investors in a tax-advantaged way. We do not pay corporate income tax. Okay. So we take the cash flow that we generate, you know, upon receipt of rent and deduction of general administrative expenses and our interest expense, and we are obligated to deliver that cash flow in large part. I shouldn't say in large part. We're, We're required to distribute a certain percentage of that cash flow to our investors in the form of dividends. We at Vici in particular are what is known as a net lease REIT. Okay. And what it means to be a net lease REIT or a net lease landlord is that while we own the building and the land underneath it, Mm -hmm. we sign a lease with the occupant who is then entitled to operate their business without our involvement or intrusion. Okay. Right? They own the economics of their operating business and they pay us rent out of the economics of their operating business. Okay. They're responsible as operator and occupant of the building for everything. Okay. They pay for the upkeep of the building. They pay the real estate taxes on the building. They're liable for anything and everything that happens within the building. They're responsible for insuring the building, right? And what it means is that every dollar rent we collect is rent that we can then after death service and GNA distribute to our investors. Got it. So no, we don't operate a darn thing within the REIT and we trust in our operators to operate their businesses really well, and we look for opportunities to help them succeed in the operation of their business, but those opportunities are really around the margins in terms of potentially helping them with capital, but we never get involved in the form of saying, hey, you know, we think you ought to charge this on Saturday night instead of that, or yeah, you know what, we don't like that restaurant, we think you should do that restaurant, we just don't do that.
1: Okay. And and before we get a little bit further, I think it it would be uh, important. How did Vici come to be? <laughs> I think that's an important story.
0: Yeah. So we we are the result of a bankruptcy, and that okay. is the bankruptcy of a certain entity within Caesars. Caesars was taken private by Apollo and TPG, the private equity firms, in two thousand seven, and. They honestly did a good job of managing the business, but unfortunately, they bought the business and they put the debt on the business at what turned out to be a highly inopportune time. And so, by 2014, a certain entity of the business was in bankruptcy, and eventually, the owners of Caesars came to an agreement with the creditor, the creditors, or a key creditor group, that the credit of this entity would largely get satisfied by conveying the real estate from Caesars to the creditors and the creditors would then be responsible for setting up a REIT that would own the real estate and that would collect rent from Caesars as the occupant of those assets. And I was, I first got involved in early 2017. i had had REIT experience, I'd run two hotel REITs at that point after leaving the ski business. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this opportunity and thought, oh my God, this could be one of the best opportunities when it comes to value creation that I've ever seen because I was just beginning to learn about the economic dynamism of gaming Mm. and how much revenue and profit it produces and thus how valuable the real estate ought to be given the incredible dynamism of the businesses that take place within it. And in real estate investing, this can be what's called a institutionalization story. You take a category of real estate that institutional capital hasn't previously understood and you help them understand it because they're not gonna invest in it until they understand it. So for us, it was an opportunity to create a story, and this goes back to my early magazine career, and learning how to tell a story as simply and clearly as you can, and really design your story to yield key takeaways that people can remember. Because if people don't remember a story, there wasn't a whole lot of value in telling them that. And so we put together a story for institutional investors that helped them understand how incredibly dynamic the operator's business was and thus how valuable the real estate should be. We IPO'd in February of 18. Uh, we went into that IPO with an equity value of about $4 billion, And over the subsequent now, almost six years, we've grown the company from an equity market cap of $4 billion to whatever we closed at today, probably around $32 billion, And have really just gotten up excited every day to tell the world about about this incredible gaming real estate, but also increasingly about incredible experiential real estate that that they they will also benefit from our investing in. And that obviously includes real estate like Canyon Ranch.
1: And we are gonna talk about Canyon Ranch. We're gonna have a nice little chat on that. Before, I wanna go a little bit further as it relates to just casinos. One, there's only, there's a finite amount of them. What makes a good buy for y'all? What boxes have to be checked? Is it city-based? Is it size of property? Obviously, the economics have to work, but what's your strike zone? The, it,
0: it's, it's really the, pretty much the conventional real estate underwriting criteria. Okay. You know, Is it a good market? Is it a good market with good, fundamentally good demographic and economic trends? If it's a good market, is it in a good location in that market, right? Is there a good catchment area? Is it easily accessible? If it is in a good market in a good location, is it fundamentally a good asset, right? Does it have curb appeal? Is, does it have good accessibility? Was it built well? Has it been maintained well? Can the occupant of that of that asset be competitive in their marketplace? And then probably finally and most critically, is it a good operator? Right, right? Do they know their customers? Do they serve their customers well? Do they make money? Can they, do they have strategies that will continue to grow the business and sustain or grow market share? And then finally, is the operator a good credit? Can we rely on them to pay the rent reliably based upon the quality of both their profit and loss statement and their balance sheet?
1: And I'm assuming these are long leases. It's, if a casino goes out, it's not like a hospital can move into some of these properties no. or, or some other type. It's, it's either gaming or nothing for most of these. It,
0: it is. And it cuts both ways, right? It, you, you know, at times we would get questions from investors like, oh gosh, it's a single purpose asset. Like, you know, if you can't do gaming and you can't do anything. And that is true. Yeah. But on the other hand, for the gaming operators, yep. it's a special purpose asset built to suit their needs. They don't have a lot of choice. You know, one of the, I don't know if you've, you're probably familiar with the term, Chris, white box, mm-hmm. right? And whenever you're in a real estate category where tenants can choose among white boxes, mm-hmm. you're in an inherently tough category. And yep. you know, you go back to the, to COVID and the degree to which some very, very good companies with all the cash resources and liquidity in the world would tell landlords, I'm not gonna pay the rent. Landlords go, what do you mean I gotta pay the rent? You got. Got all the money in the world. Yeah, we got all the money in the world. But the guy with a vacant white box three doors down has said well, he'll give us two free years of rent if we move down there. Yeah. So, play ball. Yeah. Because we got choices. Yeah. And gaming assets are are of a magnitude and a complexity that will never be vulnerable to white boxing.
1: The structure of the leases—they're long-term in nature. Is it are they absolute net leases or does Vici benefit when a Resort goes. Hey, we're building a day club, and that's going to generate a hundred million more in revenue. Do you all have any profits, interest, and additional revenue, or are they usually just straight absolute net leases, fixed cost?
0: As documented, they're they're absolute net lease. But what we what we have with our partners is the opportunity to invest capital through what we call our property partner growth fund. Got so it. the operator could decide. I'm going to invest. I, I'm going to fund this investment entirely off my own balance sheet and I will collect every single dollar of of profit that comes from that investment. Or they can come to us or we Mm. can go to them when we hear they're considering it. They can come to us and say, hey, Vichy, why don't you fund it? It's gonna deliver a really healthy return. You'll take some of that return as rent in return for our investment in, in that improvement and they'll get to take the rest. And so we have done some of that. It's really dependent on the situation.
1: Okay, then this is, this came in from, I asked my Twitter following, I said, is there anything um, I should ask him? And one of them, I guess it tracks the stock pretty close, said, Vici has the highest gross margins of any public company in the general market, literally the highest. How did he do this? And any specifics that he can share would be great.
0: Yeah, so (laughs) we have, and this is all public information, we have about $50 billion of enterprise value. Okay. We will collect close to $3 billion of rent this year across our portfolio, rent and, and interest income, because we also have a credit book. And we run these 50 billion of assets and we collect $3 billion of rent with 27 people.
1: That was the next question. How do you do it with such a great, but obviously lean staff?
0: <laughs> well, two reasons. Because we're a net lease reading because we don't have to operate anything. Yeah, We don't need the personnel and the overhead that would go with a heavy-duty asset or property management function. The other part of it is maybe I'm cheap. You know, the first read I ran, I think, as I was becoming CEO, one of the board <laughs> members said, you know, think, the thing I've learned about reads, and this is in Canada, so you'll understand the, uh, the saying, you need to squeeze a dime so tight the queen gets a headache. Because every dime you save goes to the bottom line, gets multiplied in terms of determining your value, and thus, you really you really want to manage this as efficiently as possible. And we've got 27 people. We have added people in the last couple of years. But we realized that, you know, as shareholders in the company ourselves, we get way more value out of saving money where we responsibly can, driving it to the bottom line, and have it multiplied by whatever multiple's in place at the time, whether it's 14 or 15 times,
1: right? So for every essentially billion and a half to billion seven that you buy, there there might be an extra person that shows up. I freaking love it. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting. We go through periods where we don't add anybody. We did $21 billion of transactions in 2021. We bought the Venetian real estate for 4 billion. We bought a large part of the MGM portfolio for 17.2 billion. And I think at that point, we only had 20 people. And we didn't actually immediately at anybody. Mm-hmm. And yet we, you know, we were soon collecting between the two assets whatever it was, you know, almost a almost a billion more of rent a year.
1: Is your largest competitor Blackstone? Who else buys this stuff?
0: Blackstone does and and we love Blackstone. We're actually in business with them through a couple of other different investment vehicles like Great Wolfendor Water Park Resort. But we were really appreciative when they came into Las Vegas first with buying the Bellagio then doing a joint venture with MGM's REIT, MGP, which we now own, a joint venture on Mandalay Bay and MGM Grand. And uh, then they also bought Aria and then converted Cosmopolitan, which they'd done a great job of of turning around from the great financial crisis into a home run asset that they now own the real estate of in partnership with a couple of other parties. So their competitor, Realty Income, another very good REIT, has moved into gaming. They bought the Encore property in Boston, and then they bought an interest in the Bellagio. And so capital is recognizing this is tremendously valuable real estate, whether it's in Las Vegas or elsewhere, but I also think we're benefiting now that we own 10 assets on the Las Vegas Strip, mm-hmm. benefiting from the fact that Las Vegas, is, and this was true going into COVID, but to your point earlier, Chris, it's accelerated since COVID. Las Vegas, I think, is now universally recognized as the global epicenter of experiences.
1: Oh yeah. All right, you're not getting away without saying, um, telling me the story of Project Shitco.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, so as, as, as many of your listeners may know, Wall Street investment banks love to give names to projects, right? And in fact, I remember reading at one one time that Goldman even invented a computer program that would randomly name projects so that the name wouldn't ever be a giveaway as to what it was. But as we were being born, um, we were being born with a rather ugly balance sheet. We were going to have a whole lot of debt and it was going to be very expensive. And I think there was a certain amount of skepticism on Wall Street that we would succeed. So it was never the official project name, but a few banks could not help calling us (laughs) Project Shitco because they didn't think we had a chance. And they weren't unreasonable in thinking we didn't have a chance because on paper, it didn't look good. Yep. But we were acting out of our shared conviction that this is, this is incredible real estate. And as soon as we can tell a good part of the world about how good it is, we will get the capital support that'll enable us to improve our balance sheet and grow the business and attract a premium valuation.
1: All right. Let's go to the Canyon Ranch investment and then maybe describe before that so y'all own real estate, then you partner with these great brands. How did, and and and, and experiential is something that's important. So how did this one s- start percolating and, and what's the thesis there from your perspective?
0: So uh, I would say for Canyon Ranch and for our golf investment Cabot, this, this sort of grew out of my experience back in my ski industry days of being involved with Canadian Mountain Holidays, which was, The world's first and still today the world's biggest heli ski company. And what I was able to witness in the heli ski business is that it is a business built around the whole experience of pilgrimage. People make pilgrimages to experiences like CMH, Mm. to heli skiing. They're willing to pay a lot of money, they're willing to go a long ways, they're willing to endure certain amounts of discomfort and unpredictability because it is the apex of the ski experience. And so I started sharing with my team back in probably 19 or so, the idea that, you know, we should look, and maybe I should just quickly say, Chris, we have a secular thesis around experiences generally. We believe the, the consumer economy has increasingly gravitated to a preference for experiences over things. We think that has cultural waves behind it. We believe it'll have demographic waves behind it. And so, we identified pilgrimage type experiences as experiences that, that have incredible customer loyalty, have really strong pricing power, and really good economics that could support our model. And so the first pilgrimage category we explored was golf, and we now partner with an incredible golf placemaking and operating company called Cabot, okay. which is genetically related to Bandon, to Mike Kaiser's oh, yeah. creation at Bandon. And Mike was very supportive of Cabot's founder, Ben Callendure, in creating the first Cabot Resort, which is in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And now subsequently we're growing together with Cabot in places like uh, in Florida and in their new asset, Cabot Citrus Farms. So Cabot was our first pilgrimage experience investment. And then I think it was late 20, late, what was it? Late 21.
1: And really quick, yeah. before we get to late 21, the way those work is, You'll buy the golf property, all the physical real estate, and then you'll lease it back to the golf operator. Or is that different? The
0: more or less the same model. It, it, in with in Cabot, in the case of Citrus Farms, it we we initially lend the money to develop the resort, and then that loan, a large part of it, will convert to real estate ownership, which we'll lease back to them. Got so it. no, it was actually January of twenty one. A dear friend, uh, Guy Metcalf, global chairman of real estate at Morgan Stanley, said, "Hey." you want to go to Fort Worth and meet John Goff? And I said, you're yeah, damn right I do. <laughs> and we're, we're not going to leave there without figuring out a way to get into business with John Goff and Canyon Ranch. So we came down here in January of 21, had a, a really fun meeting. And John and I hit it off and we agreed, let's just, let's just figure out a way to work together. And we eventually found the way to work together through our financing of the development of the Canyon Ranch. That will be developed in Austin, and then in the in the last year, we've expanded that partnership such that we're now a financing partner through preferred equity into Canyon Ranch Operating Company, and we're also the mortgage holder on both Tucson and Lennox, with those turning into sale leasebacks at some point in the future. And again, I wanted to meet John because I just had this conviction that Canyon Ranch is a brand of already great power and meaning in the marketplace, but that power and meaning is only gonna grow as more and more of the world, not just Americans, but more and more of the world recognizes that if you pursue wellness to the fullest, you greatly improve your life. But if you're gonna pursue wellness to the fullest, you need to go somewhere that understands wellness in its fullness, Mm. right? Physical wellness, psychological wellness, spiritual wellness,
1: and have you been to a Canyon Ranch? I've been. I'm a member of the one in Fort Worth that I've been yep. to once, and then I'll be going to Tucson uh, next year.
0: Yeah, so Tucson is gonna is gonna be the full revelation for you of what wellness can mean. And again, I think our our need for it and our appetite for it are only growing culturally. And especially for my generation, the baby boom generation, because, you know, uh, we we do intend to be here forever, as as, as depressing <laughs> as that may sound yeah. to those of you who are younger. But <laughs> Canyon Ranch is one of the key means by which we'll do it.
1: Okay, and to the extent you can maybe share, so you come in January 2021 and you say you have a fun conversation. But to be clear, it was January of 2021. Mm-hmm. This was a different world. Yes, And this was a business where you're putting your hands on people, massaging them, acupuncture, all these things. You left that meeting, like how does a deal like this actually get put together? Obviously you both wanted to work on it. What were the things that mattered to you to go, like, we're good? Obviously you believed in the concept, but how do you go from, we like this to mega deal?
0: Yeah, so we obviously believe in the brand and our belief in the brand only only grew as we got to know John and the team more and and we quickly gravitated to the austin opportunity which at that point john was already trying to figure out the funding strategy for and we looked at that particular opportunity and greatly valued the fact that john already owned the land really beautiful land outside of austin and also really valued an opportunity to invest in the in the austin marketplace because and we may get around to this later we cannot invest in Texas through gaming. right? And Mm. yet we recognize Texas to be one of the most dynamic economies, not only in America, but in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're serving our investors well if we can't figure out a way to invest in Texas's economic and cultural dynamism. So we put a lot of value on the Austin opportunity for that reason as well. And so it it didn't take a, a lot of convincing for us to believe, okay, this is a great opportunity to work together what are your What are your financing needs? What will the business be? And and what kind of financing and, and long-term real estate ownership and rent could it support? And we quickly developed high conviction around that because John has a team working for him that we have a lot of confidence in when yeah, it comes to underwriting the business. And it took us, we announced it in late, what year are we in? <laughs> I might be getting my timing mixed up because I think, announced it in October of 22, he and I went on Kramer together, as you've probably seen on Mad Money. And I don't know that it took us that long to develop, so.
1: (laughs) Maybe it was January of 22?
0: It might have been, it might have been. I'll give you a, you know, I think it was actually, now that you mention it. Okay. Yeah, so I think it took us 10 months, which in the grand scheme of things isn't all that long.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, there's a big, awesome ranch, canyon ranch being built in outside of austin texas that might be one of the best health and wellness properties not just in the country but definitely in texas Mm -hmm. that's the plan that's it boom baby real quick while we were talking about this i read a headline the other day and as i was researching you y'all are the lender on a hotel in vegas owned by the Koch brothers is Mm -hmm. this that building that's for has never been completed it just it's like a blue building. It's been around for 12 years. It's just been kind of slowly getting completed. Yeah.
0: So the story behind this building is that it was identified as a development site many years ago. Then in the early 2000s, Jeffrey Sofer, who did a brilliant job of reviving the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami, uh, committed to developing a Fontainebleau casino resort on the Las Vegas Strip then of course the great financial crisis hits his banks get cold feet pull the rug out from under him and the building goes into receivership carl icon ends up buying the building for 600 million and basically mothballs it he has no intention i believe he had no intention of, of ever completing it he just wanted to wait for the market to get better and then sell the development opportunity to somebody that development opportunity got sold to a New York developer and unfortunately covid undid him. Yep. And then at that point, Jeffrey Sofer partnered up with Coke Real Estate to buy the asset and and commit to its full development. And we are a financing partner in that development and we're very happy that tonight is opening night.
1: I love it. Amazing. Okay.
0: And the Coke and Coke Real Estate is a great partner.
1: I have a good buddy that that runs their real estate, Jake Francis. Oh he, yeah, know. yeah. Jake He's is gonna guy. be
0: a, Jake, I hope has an amazing time tonight because <laughs> he deserves it. He earned it.
1: Yeah. That's really cool. I've seen that building again, playing golf at the wind. It's like yeah. all you see. And from going to ICSC back in the early, like 2012, 2013, it's just it's kind of just been limping along for a lot of years. Yeah. That's really cool that it's opening up. Yeah. Real, one more question on Vegas that came up that I thought was interesting. It was, they said, Nelk and Dana White seem to live at Red Rock, which isn't on the strip, which makes me wonder if Red Rock has seen a legit benefit, basically the impact of influencer marketing on in-person casino experiences. Do you think about that at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so Red Rock, which is also
0: known as Stations Casinos, is, I, I shouldn't say owned, it's a public company. but Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta, who obviously partnered with Dana on, on the creation of UFC, are great operators, great brand builders. Wow. And they definitely know how to appeal to what in Las Vegas is known as the locals market. So Las Ve- the Las Vegas gaming ecosystem has three main components. It has the Las Vegas Strip. It has Las Vegas Locals, which is generally assets in the suburbs serving Las Vegas Locals. And then the third market is Las Vegas downtown, which is the old historic downtown of Las Vegas, which is its own market. It happens to be really popular, among other things, with Hawaiians, and it, it draws from both the locals market and a tourist market. But there's no question that you know social media really helps those with a story to tell and and Red Rock knows how to tell a very good story. Yeah. I mean, let me give you an example. And this goes back to the management of time and space expertise the gaming operators have. So it was a couple of years ago when the Golden Knights were in the playoffs, they obviously won the Stanley Cup this year, they're in the playoffs against the Winnipeg Jets, and the game was going to be held in Winnipeg on a Saturday. And so Red Rock uses social media and its email database to send out a note to its clientele saying, "We're going to hold a viewing party." at the pool Saturday afternoon. 4,000 people showed up, mm-hmm. right? I don't know how you would have rallied people prior to social media and the internet yep. 30, 40 years ago. You couldn't have done it. There's just, you, you couldn't have bought enough radio ads to, to pull something together that fast. And so the transformative effect of social media for businesses that have a great story to tell is really powerful, and again, it just goes back to the negativity. If you're going to read old line media about social media, chances are old line media is going to crap all over social media because social media, to a degree, is eating old media's breakfast.
1: Yes, it is lunch and dinner. All right, we're going to bring it home on Texas because I'm a Texan. You're in Texas. We don't have a casino of any proportion. And it's on everybody's mind. What's going on? Oh, and by the way, Mark Cuban just sold the Mavericks to Las Vegas Sands family and they just bought a huge site, the old Dallas Cowboys site. We talked about this. It's been at, uh, in, in Austin for several years. What's going on in Texas? Here's what here's <laughs> I wish you could do. Here's where actually I'd like to start. And that is,
0: I find Texas really fascinating. And I find Texas fascinating because I think Texas, like certain other states, including the one I now live in, Rhode Island, are kind of like, they're the embodiment of the essential characteristics of America and all of the contradictions that go with it. Mm-hmm. The slogan <laughs> of my state, Rhode Island, is the lively experiment. Okay, Texas is a very lively very rowdy experiment. (laughs) The world finds Texas fascinating.
1: We're a country, we're not a state.
0: Well, that's right, that's right. (laughs) The world finds Texas quite fascinating, but I think Texans find Texas highly fascinating. And I would say highly fascinating to the point sometimes of being inward facing as opposed to outward facing. So it does somewhat baffle me, and John Goff and I talk about this at times, especially in relation to the opportunity we believe we have with Canyon Ranch Austin. Name me a Texas resort that would be truly world famous.
1: I can't, I mean, it would have been like Barton Creek or something in Austin at one point, but I can't think of anything iconic here, not one thing.
0: And why, why is that?
1: I don't know, do you know?
0: I don't know. I don't, I mean, I could I could start guessing and it would be wild ass guessing of the richest sort that's probably facilitated if we could share some mezcal or something else. But I do think part of it is that there are celebrations of what it means to be a Texan, but they're really geared more to Texans as opposed to celebrations of what it means to be a Texan that the world gets invited into.
1: You wanna know something crazy? Of all the hotels in the state of Texas that I've stayed at, the one thing that comes to mind most often this might this is just like bizarre but it's what came to my mind the saint regis in houston which is actually an old hotel needs a lot of updating but their bar kind of hangout area i went to so many weddings in houston over the years it's maybe one of the best hotel memories i have in texas i don't know why i'm telling you that but tell your team to check out the saint regis bar area in houston at an otherwise older hotel, but that is what comes to mind most when I think of Texas hotels in a weird way. Now, I would say this to put Fort Worth on the spotlight. The Drover, Hotel Bowie, or uh, Bowie House, the De Crescent, three new hotels that have came out of the last three years are incredible.
0: Well, and here's the other thing. it's It's that, it's not that you don't have a story to tell. Yeah. Because I also think in the cultural district of Fort Worth, you have one of the richest cultural districts in America, if not the world. Right. My wife and I love art museums. And I would say the Kimball is now supplanted the frickin' New York as our (laughs) favorite museum pound for pound.
1: You heard it here first.
0: Right? And and we can't wait to come back to go to the modern and the Eamon Carter. So I I bring all this up because when it comes to gaming, you know, to what degree could a really, really first-class gaming resort, right, uh, you know, of the kind that a Las Vegas Sands or an MGM or a Caesars or a Wynn can build, what could it be as an expression of Texas in a way distinct to Texas and and in a way that invites the world in mm. to celebrate Texas and gives Texans another way in which to celebrate Texas? Now, of course, gaming for many people is problematic,
1: right? Yep. Because it's addictive and- all- Well, it
0: can be, it can be, or it, it can be addictive. But here's the thing, and this has come up for us in dealing with some of our investors uh, or in places like Europe, where, you know, I'll, I'll cite the example of a, of a European pension fund that said, oh, we can't own you anymore. We decided we can't invest in gaming. And I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and I said, so let me get this straight. In your country, is there a national lottery? Yes. Who owns it? The government. Mm-hmm. Do you have casino gaming in this country? Yes. Who, who is the principal economic beneficiary of, of gaming in this country? National government. So have you stopped buying the bonds issued by your national government because you don't believe <laughs> you should be participating indirectly in the economics of gaming? Well, no, of course you're not going to do that. And so there's a lottery in Texas, right? Yep. What is a lottery?
1: It's a, it's a total gamble. Yep. Maybe the worst one you could possibly imagine.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, there's not a whole lot of experience to be had buying a lottery ticket.
1: Correct. Odds not great either.
0: And there aren't a lot of jobs associated with the lottery. And, you know, I just, I honestly don't think casino gaming, by any, any means, an inherently evil thing. And it's a place where people can pursue risk. They can exercise their freedom to pursue risk. And I do think one of the more worrisome things in our country, and we talked about this a little bit already, Chris, is this tendency to want to de-risk life. And you know, I think there's, there's an opportunity for Texas to define what Texas gaming could be all about. I don't think the state would go to hell in a handbasket, but I also can't predict exactly how this is gonna work out. Obviously, you've, you've designed your legislature, so it's very hard to get anything done. Right and there's there's some good reasons behind that, but when you're going to truly make transformations in legislation, it's obviously going to be challenging. Based on and correct me here if I get this wrong, legislature meets every two years.
1: Uh yeah, that's correct.
0: And not for a whole lot
1: of time. No, and I think it's by design.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. So we'll see. I, I we're gonna we're gonna invest in Texas come hell or high water in every single way we can. It,
1: well, you own the—you're a real estate guy, and I won't put words in your mouth. I've heard over the years there's five big gaming licenses going to be spread across Texas, Houston, El Paso, a couple in DFW, and I think San Antonio, or I can't even remember. I don't even think that really matters. But when I hear Las Vegas Sands bought the old Cowboy site, which you might be familiar with, it's actually a pretty ugly site. It's in the middle of a bunch of highways. There's a bunch of commercial around it. When I picture this amazing gaming resort, I'm thinking like we're on Broadway. Now, maybe from a a real estate perspective, a site like that is Broadway because Mm -hmm. of its access. What would be required of a site in Texas to make it functional for a big gaming resort? Is, is there a certain size? Like, how do you actually look at it from that perspective? And I'm assuming it couldn't be out like in the hill country of Austin, where it's beautiful. It's got to be in the urban core.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I would say not absolutely and inherently. Okay, uh, it, Obviously, being highly proximate to an urban core, being at the intersection of two big highways is always advantageous. And I and I wouldn't underestimate the ability of placemakers like Las Vegas Sands to take what might be a rather unattractive piece of land and okay. do something dazzling. If you if you've never seen it, Google image a marina Bay sands in Singapore, the okay. Las Vegas Sands property there. I don't think that was a highly compelling piece of land when they got there, but what they've done architecturally is like among the most amazing exercises in placemaking in the world. So with with the kind of capital Las Vegas Sands would put to work, they could create something utterly dazzling that would utterly transform that whole
1: area. And to confirm, the thing Texas needs to get approved is basically, in a nutshell, for a fifth grader, the same law that Vegas has that would allow a full 360 gaming operation.
0: As I would understand it as well.
1: Yeah, yep.
0: Yeah. So, you know, which would typically mean slot machines, table games... And then everything that goes around it and, and recognizing too that if if Texas gaming were ever anything like Las Vegas gaming, actual gambling revenue might end up being, you know, somewhere between 35-40% of the revenue mix. There would be a whole lot of money spent on lodging, dining, entertainment, retail, recreation. So it's not. And I think Governor Abbott has been talking about it in the right way in that these should be resorts, right? These should not be simple, you know, slot boxes, right? You know, people ought to be able to go there and be entertained and have a really enriching experience.
1: Would that equal the same revenue stack that's experienced in Vegas where it's 35 to 40% gaming or would Vegas it, be it, a different mix?
0: That would be the revenue mix in Vegas. And I'm saying, you know, a fully developed resort in Texas could could come close to that. now generally regional casinos don't. Regional casinos tend to be much more gaming heavy. But I think both, if you look at the way leaders like Governor Abbott are talking about gaming, and I think if you were to ask, you know, the would-be developers of gaming in this state, how do they envision these assets? I think it would be more in the Las Vegas model than in the conventional uh, regional casino model.
1: If we're talking about risk-taking and we're talking about Texas, I think they should not throw out midland texas the oil capital that is just filled with risk takers i think that would be the best performing casino yeah on you know i used to I, mean.
0: uh, I, I used to the first hotel read i ran owned a hotel in fort mcmurray alberta
1: mm.
0: which is the capital of the alberta oil sands
1: mm-hmm.
0: and airlines flew direct flights from fort mcmurray alberta which is like a long way toward the north pole direct flights to las vegas because those guys would come out of the camps and man they were ready
1: to rumble southwest runs like a a constant i mean i think it's las vegas every hour on the hour (laughs) from from dallas ed this was a incredible conversation i really appreciate you joining me today Chris. i really enjoyed it a lot that was great i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the fort podcasts be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to youtube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.